right, welcome to Journey to Truth Podcast. My name is Tyler Koala with Aaron Kuhn, and tonight we have on Graham Sims. Graham is an author, um, UFO, or just a researcher, I guess, not UFO, but you do specialize in the UFO uh, field, correct? That's right. Um, and he, uh, you recently put out, a, or recently, when did that book come out, Impact to Contact? It was three or four years ago. Okay, you want to tell us a little, about, a little bit about that and yourself? Yeah. Uh, for people who might not know. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of people who don't know me. Um, <clears throat> so the book is called Impact to Contact, the Shag Harbor Incident. I wrote it with Chris Stiles. Shag Harper incident is a great Canadian UFO case that happened in October 1967. And <clears throat> I guess it stands out because it's really well documented. We have RCMP, Canadian Navy, Air Force documents that back up the case, which is a little unusual. Uh, we have a lot of firsthand witnesses that we interviewed, including like all the top military brass who were involved at the time. It was a big operation. There was probably a half dozen ships, destroyer escorts, US, Canadian, also a British submarine that was there at the time. It went on for a week. <clears throat> and it actually, that whole week, there was a ton of UFO sightings all over the whole province. <clears throat> it was on the front page of the newspaper the whole week. <clears throat> it actually went out on the international wire press. Um, so it got a lot of attention. It was on the CBC. Literally, the CBC was there filming, saying, the police are looking for a, a crashed saucer. Um, so it was, you know, it was really, really legit. And uh, once we in started to interview the witnesses, including, well, especially the military divers, we realized how deep the case went. Up to that point, we really didn't know how far it went. And once we talked to them, they described how the ships hung over the UFO, which was at the bottom of the ocean. Well, I mean, it was only about 100 feet down. And uh, they stayed there for a week over the UFOs, which was actually two UFOs. And they interpreted it as being one was fixing the other. So, and then they described going down with camera, movie cameras, and still photography equipment. And once they got down there, they saw that there was activity around the craft, meaning that there was creatures, sounded like greys basically, in little um, diving suits. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And he said they communicated with them telepathically, basically told them that they were just fixing their ship and they, were, they would be on their way. So originally the military went down there expecting to re a retrieval operation. But once they saw that there was activity, they stopped that and then it just became a mission of observation only. That's, uh, that's incredible that much information is actually available uh, on that wreck. Uh, I mean, I'm very unfamiliar with that. Actually, I hadn't heard of that wreckage until you told me in Hawaii. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it either. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of people here haven't heard of it either. Uh, if you like, there if you go on YouTube, you'll find probably like three or four History Channel Discovery uh, caliber documentaries on it. Um, oh yeah. So out there, but I mean, without Chris, Chris Stiles, the whole thing would have been forgotten. Basically, um, he wrote a book on it in 1998 called Dark Object, 
And that was um, edited by Whitley Strieber and uh, oh, nice. Pub, pub, basically published through with, with Whitley, and uh, that was a little pa paperback that did really well. You know, it was in like five languages. <clears throat> but then there was a lot of you know new information came up, so we decided to write the second book, and now we're working on a third one. Um, you know, we, it's it's an ongoing active case. So where we're at now with it is um, we've been trying to prove which ships were there, which is very important. It's sort of key to the story. So we've talked to divers that were on the U.S. ships, but when we got the logs, the logs all showed that the ships weren't there. So we're stuck. We're like, well, does that mean that the timing is wrong? You know, because after 50 years people's memory is pretty plastic right and they're not even sure what year it was so do we have their time wrong or did it not happen or are the logs falsified yeah. which would be a huge crime to falsify naval logs would take a big cover-up and is highly illegal yeah so, so yep when you say uh ships are you talking about the navy ships yes okay i'm sorry i just wanted to clarify that yeah. So, okay, so there, there is, so you're, what you're saying now is there's no actual logs for the ship, there being any ship there at all. So the main, first of all, we don't know which, which destroyer escorts were there. We have the name, we have one name of the U.S. ship and uh, we went down to, um, in Virginia to the archives there and got a Freedom of Information Act for it. But yeah, it was said it was tied up there. So the, one of the main ships that we thought was involved, the log for that year and the surrounding four years was just missing, which is very unusual to, you, to lose yeah. a book like that that's in, a, in an archive. You know, you have to sign it out, this sort of thing, right? So that was suspicious. Then the other sh uh, naval ships that we suspected were there, um, Library and Archives Canada that we've been dealing with were very cagey with us. They were rude, really standoffish, and they took a long time to get back to us with the photocopies. So that was all suspicious, but then we noticed on the logs of the ships that we suspected were there, a lot of them were different. Like they were be, I mean, this is 50 years old, right? So we noticed on those ones, the logs for, the, for those dates would be brand new, you know, whereas all the other papers were old, you know, from time yellowed paper. Also, yeah. you know, also, you know this, this is like sailors coming in, signing in, giving their coordinates, uh, giving a little bit of information, and that would change every hour. You'd have a new person come in. So usually it's all different handwriting, but a lot of the time these ones would have all the same handwriting, like as if it was all written at the same time on a brand new piece of paper. <laughs> so we're a little suspicious about that. You know, we're a little incredulous on that. So that's where we're at. We're, we're trying to, the next step will be a forensic audit to prove whether it's falsified or not, I guess. That's, uh, that's, very, that's interesting. So you've personally been to the site yourself oh yeah yep uh so it's called shag harbor it's the southwestern shore of the province of nova scotia it's really uninhabited there 
uh, it looks over the Gulf of Maine, basically. Now, what there is, is there's a series of um, joint, at the time it was NORAD, so Joint Canada and U.S., a, a string of um, radar bases. So there, there's another one, like mid -Can there's a Mid-Canada line, and then there's the Dew line. So that's like a string of radar bases they'd have during the Cold War so that if Russian missiles or Russian planes were coming over, it would, we'd be alerted to it. So this was the lower line. So this was Canada and U.S. military jointly. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of the sightings were outside of those bases. Now, what happened was the ship, it was, uh, the UFO was seen in the sky at nighttime with lights hovering like slowly and then stopping and then falling with a whistle and a, and a bang. And everybody thought that it was a plane. You know, nobody was even thinking of UFOs in 67 out in rural Nova Scotia, right? So they got the, <clears throat> they were fishermen. So they got their fishing boats out expecting to find a crash plane. But what, what happened was once they got out there, they just saw this disc floating on the water. And <clears throat> the RCM, by that time, there was like six RCMP, probably a dozen witnesses there. The RCMP got in a little rowboat and they started to row out to the UFO that's um, floating on the water. And just as they approached it, it went bloop and it went under the water. And they could see it powering out to the ocean. So what it did is it went out about 25 miles and went back into a little bay. But the bay that it went into is called Shelburne, Shelburne Harbor. Now, Shelburne Harbor is the home of at the time was Canada's most secret Cold War base. So it was actually the, um, it was the submarine detection base for all of the North Atlantic. So it, it was hardwired all the way down to Key West, Florida, all the way up to Newfoundland. They lay these cables so that any metal hull ship could be detected. And this is where that all plugged into. So the, and, and it had a cover story. It was supposedly like a civilian, um, uh, uh, Ocean, oceanographic research station, but really it was a top secret, the most top secret military base in Canada at the time. That's right where the UFO went, decided to park its ass for a week. It's <laughs> kind of a strange coincidence, you'd think. Yeah. He's right outside the most top secret military base. Yeah, no coincidence. Larry. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely not a coincidence. Yeah. So there, so. Has there any been any has there been any activity in the area since then, uh, as far as you know? I guess popular sightings. Yes. <clears throat> now, I mean, one of my original contributions to the book was basically getting into the history of the area, including the folklore. Um, you remember Jack Vallee and John Mack, my mentor. Yeah. They both got into the folklore of UFO sightings, and so I took my cue from them. And uh, lo and behold, as soon as I looked into the folklore of the area, there was many, many stories of these balls of light that would come out of the water. And it was just normal down there at the time from, say, the 1800s up to the 50s. The, the parents would just tell the kids, don't, you know, don't play with the, don't go down to the water when the, when the, balls, when the balls of light are there. <clears throat> you know, it was like, it was like they'd warn them about it. It was no big deal. Interesting. But then also there's old fishermen stories. Like if there's a lot of, um, <clears throat> a lot of German 
settlers in that area and a lot of German fishermen. Like Lunenburg is there. You might have heard of Lunenburg. It's an old German fishing town. Anyway, um, and there's a ton of stories about like shining silver hulled boats in the sky, you know, uh, really? that would follow people around and, you know, that would uh, mess around with the people and they'd have strange experiences. So <clears throat> the history of it was there. And it's been ongoing ever since. And even since 67, it's been ongoing. Now, <clears throat> we had an amazing sighting that we filmed last August <clears throat> in that same area, right across from Shag is, um, is an island that has a, a, a lot of strange history to it. Um, and the only three abductees that we know from Nova Scotia, for some reason, there's not a lot of abductees here. But the three that we know are all from this one island right across from Shag, and they're all women. <clears throat> and so we're good friends. I'm good friends with them and investigated their case. They all have implants that are medically documented. And, um, and so we were visiting Heather there, and, um, and she can sort of pretty much call them at will. They, they come a lot to where, uh, you know, she lives on the water on, on the beach and they show up all the time. So Chris and, um, and a friend of ours who, who uh, is a filmmaker, he came down with, <clears throat> with his cameras and uh, one of them showed up and they filmed it for an hour and, it, and amazing footage <clears throat> and all sorts of um, strange aspects to it. Like whichever way you faced it looked like it was always facing you. So even if it turned or you went around the other side, it still had the same face to it. Very strange. <clears throat> uh, it didn't look completely, it didn't look like a disc. It looked like a giant ball of light, but the, the, um, the light had a strange quality to it. It was during the day as well, it was a day sighting. The footage is amazing. Um, I can link, send you the link on YouTube to it. <clears throat> so that yeah. was, that was, you know, that was, we were happy with that sighting, you know, it was really dramatic and it went on for a long time. Um, but it's, it's funny, like uh, Chris was down there that same trip, he was down there talking, he was meeting with a journalist from the Chronicle Herald here and he noticed he was in Liverpool and he noticed he was, went to the supermarket and he noticed a big military drone up above. So he, he sort of ignored it. <clears throat> he went to his meeting with Wilkie, the journalist, and he went out to his car for a second in the middle of the meeting, and he looked up, and the drone was just right above, like 40 feet above him, over the house. So he told the he's told Wilkie, come out, come out. So they come out, they're looking at it, and the thing just takes off straight up really fast. <clears throat> and talking to the abductees, Heather and uh, Susan, another one, she says she's followed by these drones all the time. And she says they come out of those same radar bases that used to be the, the NORAD bases. Now they're unmanned. They're all just completely computerized. But apparently the drones are coming out of them and following the abductees. Interesting. Yeah. Pretty. Wow. Pretty, pretty, I mean, they don't, they don't feel threatened. But I mean, and, and the fact that they were following Chris when he was meeting with the journalists and, and the abductees shows that, you know, they're they're monitoring the situation and that's, you know, they could be protecting us. I don't know, you know, but yeah, but except, you know, I had my house broken into my girlfriend's house and they took all my, the only thing they took was the, 
the ship, the logs, <laughs> the documents uh. around the log, the footage that we took of, of, of the, of that, the ball of light in August and all the new research I had, they, they took all of that. Wow. And when they, did this happen? And they smashed and they smashed my computer. Yeah. Really? When did this happen? This would have been during the summer. Also, um, so every year there's, uh, there, we have a, a festival down there at Shag Harbor where we commemorate the incident. We have speakers and, you know, we make, you know, have do a barbecue and whatever. Or a lot lobster boil sometimes. And um, so la the year before was the 50th anniversary. So it was a big deal. But last year we had the Cousteau's come down. Uh, so Jacques Cousteau's grandchildren. So they were doing a, a piece on ocean mysteries. So um, it was, it was uh, for uh, History Channel in association with National Geographic and the Smithsonian, I think. <clears throat> and so we were sending them the coordinates for the dive because the spot where the UFO came down, like, I guess I didn't tell you, but like, it was on fire. Like it came down, the bottom of it was like red hot and it had these like um, panels, like tiles on it that were glowing like the color of like lava, you know, or like plasma. So it'd be going white hot to like bright orange. So the witnesses thought it had like lost an engine is what they said, you know. <clears throat> there was like fire coming out of it and this sort of stuff. So <clears throat> when, it, when it hit the bottom of the ocean, it fused the sand into glass. Really? And we found we found on some BIO, which is Bedford Institute of Oceanography here, they had mapped the bottom of that area uh, for other reasons. <clears throat> and when we were looking at it with them, we found all these anomalies. So, <clears throat> so we've been doing some dives down there and trying to get some samples because that would be some hard evidence if we can show that high heat fused the sand into, you know, into glass or whatever it was in these perfectly round shapes as would be the bottom of the craft. But anyway, when we were sending the Cousteau's <clears throat> via email, the coordinates for the dive, we couldn't send the emails. And as we were watching, the coordinates numbers were changing. Somebody was like live hacking into our computers and changing the coordinates. But that also happened two years before when we were dealing with Library and Archives Canada. And when we were get, they were emailing us the ship's logs, the logs, some of the logs were inter intercepted and taken right off my computer, like really? just disappeared. So there's definitely been some interference. Um, but it was always no big deal. You know what I mean? I always just figured they were just keeping an eye on things. But once they broke into my girlfriend's and, and my house um, and smashed the computers, it sort of felt a bit more threatening and sinister. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I can't believe that was just, you said just last summer over yep. the summer correctly correct wow yeah. uh yeah anytime you're you start exposing stuff they don't like that's stuff like that starts happening usually i mean if we can if we can prove i mean we've already published a ton of i mean i can get into some of the other documents we've published <clears throat> we published the and it, we happened up upon them by coincidence like the highest level of <clears throat> of classification is what the fuck are you talking about? We don't know what you're talking about. If there's no record of something, then it's not, it can't be classified, then you can't find it. So unless you, 
<clears throat> unless you have what well, a you need the, the file number you know to find something but there's no way you're going to get the file number because it's classified but then on top of that there's a whole other level that there's no record of so there's no way you're going to even know about it yeah so so that's what we so we happened to find these well chris found them this is when he started the investigation um there was a jesuit priest named father bert gaffney who started the astronomy department at the university here and he was secretly brilliant guy um jesuit and um millionaire start as i say he went to georgetown and he was secretly investigating ufos <clears throat> with the rcmp with the military and I, I believe ultimately for the vatican so when we got we went into well chris went into his personal documents he was the first person to do it and he had so they were archived at the university and he had to get all these you know permission of the jesuits and whatever and he was the first person to go into his boxes and that's where he found the X, they're called X files. So these are RCMP X files. And you'll know, notice they, they use the word X going back historically associated with UFOs and paranormal stuff. Yeah. That's, that's why the X files show. That's the show. Yeah. They got it from, right? So these were literally X files. So it started off X, you know, four, eight, three, one, whatever, which denotes UFO. <clears throat> now there is public UFO documents that they, that, the RCMP and the military have made public available online even. And those are the ones of, you know, that they can't hide. It's just the RCMP, you know, there's a UFO hovering over my house. The RCMP has to go investigate. <clears throat> and they, and everything that the RCMP does, they have to, there's a paper trail, which is great. And they're, and they're great investigators too. You know, they're trained to, to write what they see. And, um, so, but if it was more a national security type of issue, then there's a different, then it became an X-file and nobody ever saw those. No one had ever heard of them, except we just happened to find them uh, in a, through a third party. Ah. So, so uh, we published those and then Chris got another uh, document published called the, the Space Object Contingency Plan and the title of it is the master plan it's called. So this is <clears throat> now, now to get this, we had to, we had to get the permission of um, like U S military. I think we had to get every single state to sign off on it, all of this stuff because really? it, because it reveals the inner workings of two countries on how they deal with objects that come from space. What's the protocol? So that could be a satellite that comes down. It could be UFO. It could be whatever. So, you know, safety protocols, uh, chain of command, this sort of thing. So yeah. eventually we got it. And it was, you know, and we, you know, we have, you know, academics asking us for it, you know, if they use it for research, you know, it's a pretty big document. We're lucky to have gotten it. And it was really through Chris's handiwork, through his craftiness that he got it in the first place. Nice. Uh, you know, he used all these old journalistic skills to get it. It was, it was pretty impressive how he did it. We outlined it in the book. Uh, so, but basically what that says is that Canada has to pretty much um, hand over control to, to, the, to the, any U.S. group that comes. And that's what happened with the Shag Harbor incident. The U.S. got involved immediately. And it became like a, they put it in a black box and they stick they still, when we say stick handle, like in hockey, they stick handle the Canadian military. So the Canadian military didn't even really know what was going on. Really? Yeah. 
Yeah, only the brass and the guys who are hands-on, like the divers, would have really known what was going on. So, and that's, is that still, is this a current protocol that they follow? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I think they probably updated it now, but uh, yeah, I'm, that's a good question. I don't know. So I'm curious, so where did you come into all this, the UFO research? You started off in journalism, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So where did you make the turn into the UFO research? I, mean, I was always interested in it from the time I was a kid, you know, like these things either speak to you or they don't. And I remember being like 12 years old, going to the library, you know, and, and taking out all the books on UFOs I could and being blown away looking at these old blurry black and white photographs, but like, these are clearly craft. Yeah. You know? Yeah. For me, it was like a big, the emperor has no clothes moment where it's like, you know, all these military government, the teachers at school, they're all like delusional. Like they don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so that's that was my first moment of like, okay, you guys are all, you know, um, delusional and, you know, the emperor has no clothes and you're all playing along. So I could see that at an early age. So I was always interested in it. Um, <clears throat> and then in the mid 90s, I just started university and um, this book came out. I mean, I spent, I spent a lot of my money at this new age bookstore in Cambridge called uh, Seven Stars, you know, and that was all the conspiracy stuff and all the UFO stuff. I could get my, all my paycheck from the cafe I was working at there at that, at that bookstore, you know? And, um, and uh, with university, once I was in university, I was, I was the editor of the school paper and I was, I'd write stories on it. I remember Mark Carlotto's book came out on the monument, The Face on Mars. And that was when they did the first 3D um, rendering and you could see this is you know this is some serious geometry there um, and uh, and then a book came out called abduction by dr. John Mack who is a Harvard psychologist and psychiatrist and that book was amazing so he was dealing with abductees he was on Oprah Larry King at the time it was a big deal he was really the first person to really take it into the mainstream and they almost kicked him out of, out of Harvard they tried to kick him out for it really but he was so impeccable with his research that uh, they, they couldn't do it. He was so brilliant. So then I was taking a semester off. I was living in Boston and I went to the, the Harvard Employment Center looking for a job. I was taking night classes there. And I saw that Dr. Mack's um, group, it was called the Program for Psychology and Social Change. And that, well, no, then it turned into PEER, which is the Program for Extraordinary Experience Research. Uh, and that was his group where they dealt with abductees. So I saw that they were hiring for a work study program. So I applied and they hired me. And, you know, nice. that was the same. I was just like 21 and I was just getting into like meditate, Buddhist meditation, um, nice. Kundalini yoga and like all this sort of stuff. And um, so I was just, and it was good that I had the, the yoga and the meditation to ground me, you know, because yeah. I was also really far out with the, the psychics and the <laughs> yeah I was actually approached I, I was seeing a healer there at, at that same time and she's she's this beautiful young woman and she was doing you know this energy work on me and she says you know I live in Salem Salem Massachusetts outside Boston she says you know and I'm a, I'm a witch and I'm in a coven and um and the the head of my coven says that <clears throat> you were in our past life uh, during the Salem witch trials. Really? 
And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then, and later I, I was doing my genealogy and I found out that my ancestors was Samuel Cutler who came over on the Mayflower and he was, he was involved in the witch trials. He actually, it was his, it was one of his servants who was accused of witchcraft and he wrote a letter defending her. And he's even the character in the Scarlet Letter. Anyway, so I thought, oh, that's funny. Like, and then later I found that there is a, a genetic component to reincarnation. But um, <clears throat> anyway, so that was a little di divergent, but um, yeah, no, no, that was, but that, so that's what, that's what it was like for me at that point. So I started working at, at Pier and, and like the first time I went in there, there was all these children, like five to 10, and they were all psychic and all had, a lot of them were, um, their parents were abductees <clears throat> and a lot of them were experiencers. And, um, but Dr. Mack approached it from, a lot of his way of interpreting it was through Native American or, or, or indigenous African, South American, uh, shamanistic. His interpretation of UFO phenomena, less as a technology as, and more as a, a spiritual uh, phenomenon. Yeah, which in my <laughs> opinion is the correct way to interpret it. Yeah. Really. Uh, Get the full picture here, yeah. I like how you said earlier when you were just getting into it, it's like this stuff either speaks to you or it doesn't, which ring just rings yeah. true, which uh, I know it's pretty apparent and it's a pretty obvious statement to us, but uh, it makes sense to, you know, some people just doesn't resonate with them. Uh, yeah. Some people you, you, you tell them and they're just not interested at all. They just, they just uh, don't ever thought about they, it or they don't. They, they don't know to fall asleep even. Yeah. <laughs> I uh I when I years ago I was having a bonfire and I saw something in the sky just zooming and a buddy of mine were both looking at it like dude what is that like it's not a plane like we're just trying to figure it out like we're like totally drawn to this thing trying to figure out what we're looking at and everyone else at the fire just kind of like looked up and looked back and went back to talking had zero interest and I'm like, what is this? Like, I cared about nothing else. Yeah, you're like, why aren't you guys interested? Yeah, in it's, it's just funny. Like you, like you said, it speaks to you or it doesn't. I, I like that. And yeah, and if it doesn't speak to you, you're not going to look up. You're going to be shuffling, looking at your shoes. Whereas yeah. if you don't look, then you can't make contact with it. And if you make contact with it, then sometimes it makes contact back with you. Yeah, well, I was actually thinking the other day, like, how many people have actually probably seen UFOs, but they they're just it's not even in their realm of thought at all so they just they literally don't see like, it didn't see it or or just ignore it ignored it or oh that was weird whatever exactly. yeah yeah just it's just nothing out of the normal oh, you know thing was flying around that's interesting yeah I don't, like i think that sometimes the same with ghosts like sometimes i've been i've seen what would be a ghost but i just turn around and then i just ignore it and then later I was like, wait a minute, what was that thing? Yeah, and why did I just ignore it? Yeah. <laughs> How often does that happen where we see things and our brain just decides to shut it off? Yeah. Or, or we just tell ourselves like, oh, it was probably nothing. And exactly. Yeah. yeah. Miss it. Yeah, that's, it's, it's fascinating. It really is. There's a whole, there is a whole other world out there. I'm convinced. I mean, I've been, I, I'm convinced because I'm living it. You know, shit happens all the time. You, yeah. You, you can't ignore once you're part of that that's where you know that's where the research that's why you started researching 
Mm-hmm. You want to know more, you have to know more. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's the greatest um, satisfaction. That knowledge, you know, nothing better than that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally agree. And uh, one of the things like uh, Leon Isaac Kennedy said in Hawaii, like, you know, we have all this knowledge, all this knowledge, but you know, what good is the knowledge if we don't apply it to our life? So whenever you actually take that knowledge and do something with it, like write a book or, or whatever it might be, you know, and actually apply it, how does it apply to you? Where do you fit in, in the big picture? So that's, it's really interesting. And I, and I commend you for doing the work that you do to be quite honest, everything you've said so far is, is extremely fascinating to me. Uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you on and, and be able to hear this firsthand from you. Uh, thanks, oh, thanks man. No, I, I love it. <clears throat> but yeah, that time, that time in 96, when I started working at, <clears throat> at Pier, like I quickly found out that everybody there was an abductee, you know, really? everybody who was working there. And, you know, a lot of them were making babies for the, <laughs> for the aliens. So what my job there was, um, mostly was I would, so you have to picture it like this is communion communion by Whitley Strieber just coming out. It's just really entering the mass consciousness of America at that time. Right. Yeah. Great book, by the way. And so suddenly all these people with these weird memories, it's starting to click into them that something's going, been going on. <clears throat> so it was like a mass awakening. And so what I, so they would contact Pierre because they were, they heard of John Mack and they, you know, he was, you know, he had the credentials and um, and we would hook them up with a therapist. We had a master list of therapists all around the world in every state in the, in the United States that was trained to deal with abductees. So they would call or write, and I would send them. I would connect them with someone in their area who was trustworthy to deal with these matters. <clears throat> but you know, sometimes you know we would get calls people yelling hysterical, you know, the UFOs in the backyard, the aliens are come trying to get me, you know, like (laughs) at the same time, we'd also have people calling being like, I want to be abducted. Can can you (laughs) come get me? I think we've all had that moment before. (laughs) Oh, you've seen, you've seen the meme. I will literally pay you to abduct me. I'll literally pay you to abduct me. Yeah. Uh, so but, yeah, be careful what you wish for though. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's very true. I, I, uh, a, a friend of mine, he's, he's had many Sasquatch sightings. He's big into oh. the, he's big into the Sasquatch, uh, uh, claims to have communication with them. And, and I was asking him, he was like, I would really love, love to know. I would love to have my own communication where some things I can do, but you know, I just, whatever. And, he that's the first thing he says be careful what you wish for mm-hmm. and, and I, I was like why he goes because it's gonna open up a whole world that you're not you might not be ready for yeah no literally i mean consciousness is a primary element of this phenomenon so <clears throat> not only do they communicate like through dreams but also through waking consciousness you know it it happens all the time that's that's the method so that's how you can you can initiate contact through you know through your intention and, and through your through your mind manifestation yeah you 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 have to manifest it you have to create it 
Yeah, I get it. I get into that in, in the book. A couple stories of um, my experiences where where that happened. I, I asked them for a sign, and they rolled out of an impressive piece of technology. And uh, it wasn't just me; there was other people there. So it was uh, it was re really humbling, actually. Yeah, that's. I, I'm I'm gonna have to. Uh... I'm gonna have to check out your book and give it a read. I'm 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 more than fascinated. It's on Amazon, and I, I can also just send you a copy. I can I can also just uh, send you e, an ebook e, e copy of it really easily. Yeah. Oh, that'd be that'd be great. I appreciate that. So being out in uh, up in Canada, Nova Scotia, what are, what are your thoughts on Oak Island? Yeah, yeah so I spent a lot of time. I, I wrote. I've written um, a lot about Oak Island. I spent a lot of time there, did a lot of interviews there. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's funny because I, when I started to consciously get into the paranormal, I thought, well, I might as well start in my own backyard. So Shag and Oak Island were in my backyard, literally. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot, to it you know and the way i see it too is it's it's a it makes history come alive when you can see it through these um uh paranormal or conspiratorial uh lenses a lot of the stuff with like the um this the the bloodline the the, the holy grail and the bloodline like the um uh, dan brown stuff the da vinci code stuff yeah when you understand that this this is behind history this is what like the primary, one of the primary pulls and pushes of, of uh, forces throughout history. And it overlaps with the UFO, with, with the ET phenomena as well. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, to, cause you know, you've got the Priory of Zion, which is sort of this um, secret society in Europe that's putting out a lot of this information, disinformation, <clears throat> you know, sort of like Illuminati type thing. Yeah. And they seem to be positioning themselves as being uh, this bloodline descended from the Merovingians, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. then when you realize that these bloodlines are the ones that are, um, you know, that mated with the Anunnaki or the whatever with, the, with these ET bloodlines, <clears throat> so that the, the reptilian DNA is in these rulers, then you can see... <clears throat> That maybe they're trying to position themselves if there is some sort of disclosure that they're they could be positioning themselves for a new sort of divine right of kings yep so yep nailed it it's the same old royalty but they're like <clears throat> now we have the you know the et god's dna so we're your natural rulers now you but, know yeah we have the divine right to rule yeah so are we still talking about oak island or <laughs> well, so, so the holy grail the holy blood holy grail overlaps with oak island that's sort of the key to understanding it now <clears throat> i mean it's pretty clear that um it's, it was a military operation from um from the 1750 was the latest workings you know so that's clear and it given the timing and the the caliber of the workings, the digging, um, we know that it would have been uh, British military. British, British military, yeah. And the timing, what happened was they were, <clears throat> they went down to um, Havana and they sacked Havana. They sacked all the gold 
that the Spanish had taken from South America. And um, they, they were going to use it to overthrow the king and put in their guy in Great Britain. But they stopped here for the winter, uh, hid some of it at Oak Island, basically, is what it sounds like. Now, it's not that simple, of course. No. Uh, because they, the British knew about it probably through Francis Bacon, who was involved in the secret societies. <clears throat> and it had been used probably from the time of the Templars. <clears throat> we know the Templars were coming here um, in the 1300s. It was going to be the New Jerusalem. So they had you know, some sort of crazy technologies too, probably the Templars, spiritual technologies, uh, sacred knowledge anyway, um, in addition to great wealth. And because they also had the maps from their for Viking forebearers, they had the maps that could navigate, they were the only people who could navigate the globe at that time. So they knew about here. They knew about Oak Island and they, they had, and it was probably a repository for some of, some of their treasure. But, you know, there's theories that it could go back to like the bloodline of King David, this sort of thing. And maybe they buried some of the bodies there. It could also be, you know, it could be the Stasis Giants. Uh, there, there's some, yeah. there's some stories that are unverifiable, saying that they sent down a submarine there, um, like five or ten years ago, and they retrieved some, uh, some of these ancient bodies of these ancient bloodlines there with, you know, with some whatever, some sort of, uh, you know. Uh, goods, you know, uh, sacred, yeah. sacred items of one sort or another. But the interesting thing I'll tell you about Oak Island that not a lot of people know is that there is tunnels out of Oak Island to other islands in the area. Correct. Correct. Yes. So that's where they could be looking. You know, there's a lot of, <clears throat> and I think a lot of it has been found already, you know, but even going back to the original workings, like uh, when Daniel Smith supposedly found it like in 1850, they've been finding pots of gold there for a long time. And, and I'll tell you like a lot of big Canadian businesses like Sears maybe got their start because they found chests of gold at Oak Island and they didn't tell anybody and they started their family fortunes that way. Well, that's, uh, a, like, you know, Samuel Ball, he was one, you know, the slave who escaped and became wealthy and had properties on Oak Island. You know, where did okay. he get that money? Yeah. 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 Uh, what's what? So what we do know about Oak Island, though, is they have they have found, you know, almost between 150 200 feet below the ground when they're doing this core drilling and stuff, uh, remains of human bone that actually, uh, after testing, come from Europe. So, so we know that the Europeans have been there, and actually, you know, just following the History Channel show and doing some of the research on my own. What's amazing is, is it's already rewritten American history, mm -hmm. but where is that information in, in our textbooks and our education system? That's what I'm it's thinking. It makes history come alive. They should really include it. It makes it so much more interesting. It, it, it connects so many dots. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, as far as there being on tunnels going to other islands, there's, there, I've seen those theories. I've seen the people come forward and claim that. Um, I... I was, uh, I'm a member of uh, MUFON, you know, Mutual UFO Network, and I was at one of the meetings, and every year this lady, Margie Kay, she's a, a well-known channeler, uh, she comes and speaks speaks mm -hmm. every year, and, and 
she just started going into Oak Island on her own. She decided she wanted to, she had such amazing results with the channeling. She wanted to know it was on Oak Island. Uh, they told her the Ark of the Covenant and other religious artifacts, but it would never be found because it's an ET technology that we're not ready for. Yeah. And I, uh, so it, it's just, you know, that that's neither here, either here nor there, but it's still- from other sources as well. I think that's likely. And that would go back to the Templars. Yes. And which makes sense how you said they all have that ET bloodline. It, this is a, there's something there that is beyond just a, gold, a chest of gold. Yeah, exactly. Now, it's interesting, the Holy Grail, Holy Bloodline theory. Um, I mentioned Bill Bueller. He's a channeler who channels a lot about Oak Island and the same, the same as uh, your Margie, uh, same results. <clears throat> but he... Um, now there's a guy called Bill Mann who who I've met and I've worked with. He's written several books. He's a he's a Templar, and um, there's other evidence as well. There's there's plenty of physical evidence for at least Henry Sinclair was um, the guardian of the of the Templars. He was basically he was after the Templars. He he, he built Rosslyn Chapel and uh, started the the new Freemasons. So he was the link between the Templars and the Freemasons. So he came here in. Um, in the 1400s and um and he he has there's also uh, the xeno map the xeno narrative is, is another document that outlines that the templars came here and there would have been a ton of them there would have been like 500 of them plus uh farmers settlers you know they had a whole little settlement here but the idea is that what happened was they're protecting the treasure that they were protecting was the bloodline itself. Now the bloodline would maybe be the bloodline of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, who, but beyond that, what is it? Is it, you know, is it ET e e bloodline is the idea. Yeah. Now, and so they, it goes back to the Cathars who were burned by the church um, for protecting the, the grail. And the grail was the blood, the bloodline. So the idea was that they brought this bloodline here to Nova Scotia the Templars, and they hid them, and they hid it by mixing them in with the indigenous population, with the Mi'kmaq, who they had a, a warm relationship with, unlike Columbus. They, you know, they lived with them, and they, and they got along with them. So that's the latest theory um, behind uh, the Holy Bloodline, Holy Grail in Nova Scotia, that they mixed the, the bloodline with the indigenous people here. Yeah, and that makes that makes perfect sense. I mean, just a lot of the findings alone, just even the physical artifacts, mm -hmm. it all ties it in. There's a, there's a clear storyline here. You know, uh, mm -hmm. it's just a matter of connecting the dots at this point. Mm -hmm. And uh, but one of the things that she said was, "They're never. That's not. They're not going to find it." And we've all heard of the curse. You know, it's it, it just seems like anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Uh, so I just can't help but think there's some type of otherworldly power that or force that that's kind of kind of has a, has Oak Island by the strings like a puppet, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, if it's the if it's the the Grail or the the Ark of the Covenant, you know, they're gonna um, the powers that be would know that, and they would have already retrieved it, or they'd be protecting it, you know. 
mm-hmm. without exactly. a doubt. Exactly. They're, it's not, it's not going to be a discovery to the public. Some, yeah. There, there's, there's some organization that already knows exactly what's there. We, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If, if they'll give us about, a few little tidbits, you know, they'll give us a, 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 like you say, a chest of gold, maybe, you know. Yeah. I'd be happy with Francis Bacon's uh, original manuscripts, which is a lot of what some people think is, is there as well, showing that uh, he was Shakespeare. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to say that, actually. And within, within Shakespeare, you can apply these codes, and, um, and they definitely talk about Oak Island and, and how to get there. I don't know if you can see the, um, the painting behind me, the Shepherds of Arcadia. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. So that one you can, that was by Nicholas Poussin. And that also has, um, it has the sacred seal of Solomon, which is basically like the star of David in a circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's built into the geometry of the painting. But within that, uh, supposedly you can also derive a, a, a treasure map that leads to Nova Scotia and Oak really? Island that's in the painting. Wow. There's so many theories about even to Shakespeare's books, uh, even being a map themselves within mm-hmm. within the pages. Yeah, yeah. really. Yeah, it's and it, and actually, if you look at if you look at what some of these researchers have came up with, I mean, there's, there's it's very plausible that there might be something going on there. Oh yeah, and they, and they have they have recovered you know ancient book bindings and manuscripts and with with certain types of inks that are very rare that were used by mm-hmm. only high class people. Uh, they, so they, part, parchment, yeah. parchment, yeah, ink on parchment that would have been used at the time of Shakespeare. Yeah, they've retrieved yes. that early on. But you know, do you ever hear the story like FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, before he was president, he he was one of the early uh, treasure hunters at Oak Island. He would have been like in his twenties because he, you know, he 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 lived in Maine and Campobello, so it was just a quick sail over. But his <laughs> He, he messed it all up. He, he put 50 pounds of dynamite down the shaft and blew it up. Really? Yeah. Yeah, no logic there. Yeah. Why? I think it would loosen some stuff, whatever. But I mean, it's going to, it probably would have ruined some, you know, some stuff waterlogged, too. waterlogged everything at best. Yeah. Which I have a feeling the, the majority of, uh, some of the just just a physical treasure it has been destroyed. I think, yeah, yeah. just by the searcher, just from searcher, yeah. searchers alone. Uh, been it's been disturbed. It's been gone over over two hundred. Yeah, the the years government now. really should have taken the reins of this, and they should have made it an official archaeological dig, and then they could have you know they could have done it right. And then they could have opened it, you know, it would have had tourism potential and it would have had scientific validity instead of just opening it up to any Yahoo treasure hunter. Yeah. Or, or maybe they understood how well it's hid. They understood that maybe let them waste their time on it because they're never going to find it anyway. Yep. It could have, you know, why draw all this attention and spend all this money when, when we don't have to worry about it? Yeah, maybe they just didn't want to draw the attention to it by yeah. doing anything like that. Yeah. It's possible. The, the conclusion I came to um, after interviewing uh, some engineers there was that the really the only way to get past the flood tunnels was to do this technique that they use for uh, drilling for oil in 
in frozen lakes, which is basically you dig down the 250 feet, you dig posts all around it. So for say for 150 feet around, and then basically what you do is you freeze it. It's basically like cold radiators and they make a, a slush and they freeze it. So then you've got like a four foot wall of ice and then you have to dig out the center from that because otherwise it keeps flooding. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's clearly what everyone's running into is the flood tunnels. I mean, that's what stopped it every time. Yeah, for 300 years. So this is the only way to get past that. So that's a huge operation to do. Imagine like a 250-foot circular wall of ice. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. – well, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with some of the workings that are, that, that are going on there now. I mean, they are spending millions and millions of dollars yeah. uh, building a coffer dam and all kinds of stuff to hold back the seawater. And, and, I mean, my God, the, the dynamite, the sonar testing. Yeah. Uh, it's dude, I don't I wish I knew the dollar amount I mean they, they may be spending so much money that might not even be worth it you know yeah I question whether they applied that money in the right way you know uh, the way I was talking about they must be familiar with it because every, it's what everybody has been talking about as the only way to really do it but this is certainly uh, dragging it out for ratings so oh yeah as far as the history channel show yeah Definitely. And they, they, what's in, what I like about that show is it's probably the only show I actually watched just because I'm fascinated with the Island itself. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the only series I would say that I keep up with. And my favorite part about it is that so many people get angry with it because they're not finding anything. It's very lackluster sometimes, but it's real. Like it's real, yeah. but you know, they're not like, like hyping it up, making this some like, you know, theatrical thing. It's just like, sometimes it can be extremely boring, but you're yeah. going, you're experiencing what they're experiencing. So I guess it would be kind of reality TV at, at its core, what it's supposed to be, you know? I like when they brought in the history too, you know, like some of the researchers and the, uh, the um, Rosicrucian angle. I don't mm -hmm. know if you saw that was a couple of seasons ago. Oh, yeah. I've seen them all. So yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that brings in the history that we're talking about the, the um, holy bloodline theories and this sort of thing. So that's, that, that's a, a nice addition to it. Yeah. Like, well, the history alone is fascinating. It, it's, it's worth it just to, uh, just to understand some of that, you know? Yeah. Um, I was looking at a history book uh, called Warden of the North about the history of Halifax here. And they go back to that time in 1750 when the British military had sacked Havana and they stopped here for the winter. And it was just hilarious because they had so much money, right? So they, so all the soldiers got a, a big allotment of money. So all the hookers and all the bars were just full all winter here. They were digging and, and, and burying the treasure. That's hilarious. So, wow. Big party here the whole winter with the British, with the British military here. <laughs> wow. That's so, funny. That's funny. Uh, so you said before we started that we were, you had, you were, you started off in journalism, you kind of got away from it and you were getting into telling us how you were getting back into it and you have a magazine you're uh, publishing. Is that correct? Yeah, we're doing an online magazine called Solarian Times and <clears throat> we've recruited a whole bunch of independent journalists, um, people you probably would have heard of, a lot of female journalists, um, on the ground in Syria and Venezuela basically we're republishing a lot but we're putting out quite a bit of virtual material as well and the focus is on basically um 
analyzing censorship and war propaganda in the corporate military in the corporate press you know and all the press these days is just in a sad state you know basically it's 90 percent military um propaganda you know oh yeah keeping these wars going you know through false flags and you know the the corporations and the <laughs> and the uh and the media is just totally on, and it's always been like that, you know, going back to William Randolph Hearst, you know, they were using the, the media to propagate false wars. Anyway, so we're analyzing that. Um, uh, my partner is in London, England, so we'll, we'll, we'll have a UK, US and Canada sort of center to it. And we'll, we'll be multimedia as well. So we'll have like um, video <coughs> analysis, sort of bite-sized pieces that you can you know, so you can press play. So you don't have to read the whole story. You can just press play and listen to us reading the story and analyzing it through, you know, the lens of um, being aware of what's propaganda and what's and what's real. That's very nice. interesting. Is there a timeline on when we when? Yeah, it'll we be. We're we're designing it right now. We've got the content, so it should be up in the next month or so. It's called it's SolariumTimes.com. So pretty soon. That's yeah. Check that out. SolarianTimes.com. Thanks. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, spell that. Solarian. S O L A R I A N. Solarian. Yeah. So which just means having to do with uh, the sol our solar system. Yeah. Ah, uh, nice. Yeah, I like that. I like that name a lot. But that, you know, I, 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 we had such a good time in Hawaii. Uh, cosmic waves and you know I got a lot of ideas from listening to Corey Good you know um, <clears throat> I got a, some ideas for stories that I'm I've been working on uh, not to do with Solarian but just uh, for my own blog and stuff I mean <clears throat> that idea when I, when I was talking about the bloodlines because <clears throat> I've been researching the holy blood holy grail phenomenon the the priory of Zion in Europe <clears throat> and and he mentioned how with disclosure that um that the elite could be setting themselves up to uh, have this divine right of rule. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought, well, you know, I, I know about both of those things and now we can see that they could actually be joined together. So I got, I got a lot of good ideas at that, that week, you know, just, I was so inspired. <clears throat> um, Everybody was inspired. I mean, if people didn't come away with that with ideas, I mean, I already yeah. know people who've started YouTube channels since they've been back. Nice. It was definitely an activation event for sure. It is. Uh, it was. It was incredible. Did you? What did? Uh, what did you experience uh, swimming with the dolphins? By the way, did you have any uh, any cool experiences with them? I mean, it was just a beautiful thing, you know. Um, it felt very natural and sort of. Um, <clears throat> pre-thought like I wasn't I was just feeling my heart and the environment I wasn't my mind wasn't sort of overlaying thoughts and analysis you know I was just very in the moment and that's a really special place that pre-thought you know that <clears throat> that place where we exist without um without having to bring in uh words and and analysis you know just like being present it's a very yeah. pure it's a very yeah. pure state and you see that with dogs and dolphins you know they they live in that in that in that moment all the time yeah there's no anxiety because anxiety is worrying about the future even yeah. if it's your next step 
as right, soon as right, you right. eliminate that next step, you, you've gotten rid of that anxiety. I noticed, I, you know, when I first got into the water, it was very, you know, I'm still trying to figure out how to breathe through that mask and all that stuff. And as soon as the dolphins swam, I, everything just calmed. I forgot. I just was able to breathe, relax. It was, a, it was incredible. It was, it was a magical experience. It really did just, yeah, like you said, just you were just present in the moment at that time. It was very, very, uh, it, was, it was changing, life-changing for me. No, you're exactly right in that state of if we're not worried about the past or anticipating the future, then there's no anxiety because we're, we're in the present moment. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and that's the closest that, I mean, I think that's the enlightened state, you know, I think oh, we yeah. touch, I think we touch enlightenment all the time, you know, every day, just it's fleeting though, you know, and then, and then our worries come in, but it's, it's our natural state of being. Yeah. It's not necessarily some exotic far away, uh, halo, you know, uh, you know, um, ascending to the stars type of thing. I think it's a very practical human. It's our natural state of being is, is, is a little, little bit enlightened when, when, when we can be in the moment. Absolutely. <clears throat> and that's, um, that's where that's where life happens too is in the moment because if you think about it the past and the future don't really exist except in our minds right because it's always now it's always the present moment so when you're worrying about the past or you're worrying about the future or you're you're, you're, you're your mind's in a place that doesn't exist and you're not you're not able to live truly because you're not in the present moment so um, yeah so that's why meditation is so important because it really brings you back to the present and to your awareness and uh and you just become the awareness of who you are exactly yeah well said very well said thank you I, um yeah meditation is one of those things that i think a lot of people struggle with especially when you're new to it um it's just trying to get oh, yeah. in prison without letting those outside thoughts just bombard, you know, like they oh, I, I struggled with it a ton when I first tried to get into meditating. Um, but we're, we're always meditating, you know, meditation just yeah. means getting used to. So <clears throat> yeah. whatever we get, our, we get our mind used to, if we get used to overthinking or about um, anxiety or selfishness, or hatred then we then we're meditating on that and our mind be, that becomes our default position for our mind yeah when we sit and formally meditate it's not so much about getting the thoughts away it's it's about not getting carried away so you have the thoughts that's okay thoughts are good but then you just come back to the yeah. breath well, you can yeah and you can observe your observe your thoughts rather than yeah. um because because most people are than being the thoughts, right? Yeah, yeah. Most people are are living in a in an unconscious state where their thoughts are kind of controlling them in a way. But when you take a step back and you're and you you're able to observe your thoughts instead of just reacting all the time and and yeah, yeah. being them, like you said. Um, yeah, that that's how panic occurs. You know, when yeah. your when your thoughts control you. Uh, in meditation, yeah. with all of that stuff, anxiety, panic, fear, everything. Exactly. And like, like you said, it's about 
It's about having the thoughts, but reminding yourself, consciously coming back to the state, like re just wiping the slate continuously throughout the medita what, meditation. Just don't get carried away with the thoughts. I like the way you put that. Yeah, so we can just label ourselves thinking. And just by labeling it, we can separate ourselves from it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, because you're not uh you're not the mind that's thinking you're you're the awareness behind that that's that's you that's the true self that's your true self so um it, you can yeah kind of go into that awareness when you're and right and then and that way if we practice that way then we don't have to formally sit down all the time then we realize that we're always meditating and we can always come back to the present and we can let go of our thoughts and come back Absolutely. And we can be doing that all the time and there's, there's so many ways to do it. Uh, I don't know if you met Nigel down in Hawaii, if you remember meeting him. Uh, he explained to us one day, you know, you don't have to close your eyes to meditate. You, you don't, you, you know, which is a lot, of, a lot of people understand that, but we think you just have to close your eyes and get in this position. Yeah. You can, you can sit down in the beautiful beach of Hawaii and just look up or look at wherever you want to look at and just appreciate it and that's meditating also I, I was taught to practice with my eyes open um <clears throat> i think just for that reason so you don't separate it from your everyday life so it's not like i'm meditating and now i'm not meditating yeah, yeah. your eyes are closed also it's easy to sort of trip out and get and go on some psychedelic journey and you know what i mean real yeah. meditation is very grounded it's not like a psychic experience really it's about just being in your body present doing, you know, it's about doing what you're doing. It's nothing, nothing else. You know, if you're chopping vegetables, you're chopping vegetables with attention. That's what you're doing. That's meditating. <clears throat> so that's why it's beneficial to, to keep your eyes open. So you don't separate it. And that that's part of that goes along with the whole awakening is, is doing everything with intent. If the, even the smallest thing, I guess that's the way, like, I guess samurai and like ancient people, uh, all over the world really used to do things, but they, they did everything with intention. It, it wasn't just, you know, nonchalantly do this or whatever. Like you, you perfectly described it, cutting vegetables, it, uh, just, um, and then talking to, you know, the vegetables or talking, you know, just being connected with everything, nature and your entire existence, drawing it all together. Cooking, with, we don't, cooking with love makes the food taste better. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's true. Uh, something that uh, we're all we're, we've all been disconnected from at, at some point, you know, or, or still are. Well, they say how we do small things. How we do the small things is how we do the big things. How we do one thing is how we do everything. Yep. Exactly. Somebody, uh, I I actually noticed that too. Uh, I would, me and this guy would carpool to work every day, and we take the sidewalk around. And every day he would take the sidewalk and every day I would cut the, cut the, he would take the sidewalk yeah. and I would cut the corner mm -hmm. and just because, and I, so, and I honestly, I started consciously thinking about that. I was like, like that applies to all aspects of my life at that time, you know, <laughs> always cutting corners. Cut corners. Uh, it, it, it really, if you start, if you're able to observe your life in that manner, you can really start making changes. And this is before I even understood what any, I, I didn't even know what awakening meant back then. 
but I was already doing it in a, on a subconscious level, uh, which is just interesting. You said yeah. it applied. Yeah. I was thinking the exact same thing recently. Like <clears throat> it's almost like holographic or fractal, you know, like the same patterns <clears throat> it's, or sy symbolic, you know, the same patterns psychologically apply to, you know, how, how, you know, um, I wrecked my car, you know, because I let it get too hot and then too cold. And then, you know, the same patterns I can see applying on all different scales in my life. Yeah. And it, as soon as you step back and observe that, uh, that's, that's when you take control. It takes. Yeah. And the one, well, that's why it's so important to focus inwardly and change yourself. Cause so many people are trying to change their environment. They're mm -hmm. trying to, control their environment and change everything on the outside and it works and mm. they're just scrambling, running around trying to, you know, but they're never working on their, on themselves and they're never looking inward and examining themselves and being like, what? Yeah. Like, um, what we just talked about. And that's where change happens is that's so true. And that's my experience as well. Uh, you know, I've been studying Buddhism for quite a while and, <clears throat> You know, and I was I was waiting for some big mystical revelation, and what they taught me was basically like, clean up your room. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like clean up your shit before you go trying to change the world. Why don't you clean up the vomit that you're spewing all over everybody first? Exactly. You know? <laughs> but then, but then I did I did learn about real magic though. Then. <clears throat> to what you were saying and what I, and the way that it manifested was i saw that when i was processing things inwardly through practice and so on <clears throat> i would be when i was positive able to be positive with my intent inside the external world would manifest that mm -hmm. and similarly when i was like narrow teeny neurotic pissed off it would seem like externally that the world would react. And I was like, that is schizophrenic. That's impossible. Yeah. But effectively it would, it would, it was, it didn't seem like it was in my mind. Like it seemed very real that <clears throat> negative things would happen when I was in that state of mind. And yeah. when I was in a positive process state of mind, that things would work better and that positive things would happen. And I realized that is real magic. If we can actually change the external world by changing our internal world, even if it's just perception. But mm. the point is that it's not just perception. It actually is co-creating your reality. Yeah. In an objective way. Like, and that, that's crazy. That's, I mean, that's, and that is true magic. That's the definition of magic. I'm pretty sure. That's what magic is basically. Yeah. Um, Cause we're, that's, we are, we are, um, I mean, we're God experiencing himself in different uh, points of awareness. And we, you know, we just are amazing beings like that. We, we're all creators and we're always creating. We just don't realize it. Um, yeah. We need to realize that we have that potential, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing that, you know, our whole world and society, you know, when you, when you, when you dig into the conspiracy stuff and you, you realize who's been running the show, uh, you know, putting out all the information in the media and everything else and governments, um, 
we're, we've been the ones with the power the whole time. It's just that they've tricked us into creating the reality that they want. So they, yeah. so they show us all the stuff that they want us to create and then we react to it and then we create and then, and we don't realize we're the ones doing it. But as soon as we wake up to that, it's game over, you know, and that's why they've kept, they've kept that information hidden so, so tightly for so long. Um, yeah. yeah. They just want people to get addicted to the bait, you know, that whatever they put out, you get addicted to it and that becomes your reality. And yeah, it's, yeah, that's their big living goal. Living in invisible chains and in invisible jails, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you, the mind, yep. and, and, and you literally people, people, I shouldn't say people, cause we've all been there. All of us. You oh know, yeah. We've, <laughs> we've all been there. Uh, we, we still, I don't know about you guys, but you know, I still find myself getting pulled into that sometimes. You know, oh yeah. Depending on. It's the, a continual growing yeah. process for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's definitely, it's never ending. It's never ending. And as soon as you think you've made it up here, you know, something will happen and all of a sudden you're like, shit, I'm back here again. Yeah. Okay. No. And yeah. It's a, and that's why it's so important to every single day, you know, just make it a daily practice to remind yourself of all these things and, and to, and to meditate and to make sure you're living in a conscious way because it's very, very easy to just go right back into living unconsciously and living like that. So. No, yeah. one of the reasons I went to cosmic waves, you know, was to be around like-minded people because it's easy to lose your perspective and to lose your inspiration if you're not surrounded. Oh Yeah. Uh, people who can remind you of these all these things exactly absolutely it's, it's literally like a reset when you go and surround yourself with these people uh, like laura eisenhower said she says we need to start participating in dna activating and uh, consciousness lifting uh uh in activities such mm -hmm. as these events and, you know because yeah. like you you said the further and further and further or the longer and longer you are away from it, the further removed you become and you do lose motivation and you do start questioning things until you're surrounded and you see all these people just activate and light up and it lights something up in you and uh, it's a reset. Yeah, no, it's very important. So we have to create our own communities if there's not already one. And this is what you're doing, you know, with your show. It's, it's a way of doing that, connecting. Yeah. Community. No, it's vital. Yeah, it's a way of connecting, and uh, man, I I gotta tell you, it's uh, it's become one of my favorite things. Yeah. I look forward to it every week. Uh, just Same here. just having these conversations and learning so much is, is uh, aside. If we weren't doing this, I wouldn't. We wouldn't get to do this. You know, yeah. it's just, <laughs> you gotta uh, create your I mean, own. Yeah. Uh, and it's every week it's like a, it's almost like a mini reset you know it's all, it's very inspiring to to be doing this and we get excited about having everybody on because so many people have some amazing things to say uh, yeah. and they don't they don't they don't always get a chance to say it to anyone sometimes yeah it's it, well it's amazing i mean we we learn how much you know the people in this community are there's so many amazing people in this community that don't really get a platform ever or hardly ever, or you don't realize how much everyone knows and how much wisdom and knowledge and 
how amazing so many people are in this community until you get to sit down and talk with them for an hour, an hour and a half. And, and that's what we get to do on this. You know, it's, it's just a way to, to uh, sit down and connect and get to, uh, yeah, just talk with amazing people. So thank you for, thank you for being on. <laughs> Where are you guys, by the way? So I'm located in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. I'm, I was there until about a year ago and I moved to Kansas. I'm in Wichita, Kansas, actually, right now. <laughs> but I'm, yeah, I'm considering actually moving back though, so. Well, we're spread out, that's great. Thank yeah, God. yeah. Every, every, there, it's all long distance and the, you know, most of the time, I guess the majority of the guests have been from the West Coast, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so far, yeah. Yeah, always trying, like you're always trying to figure out the time zones and the time differences. Yeah, you're pretty good at it now. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, I guess we'll we we'll go ahead and start wrapping things up with that. Is uh, there any last last things you want to say, Graham, before we uh, sign <coughs> off? No, I mean, if there's anything uh, that we covered that you want to hear more about, but um, that's uh rough sketch of what I'm have been up to um yeah we've got we've got some other publications coming up well Chris is working on a uh, follow-up to the last book just to cover the new material um I mean I guess what we're hoping for is I feel like that this case could be like the tip of the spear for disclosure in Canada UFO disclosure in Canada if we can get you know um a government investigation going uh and certainly if if there's falsified naval logs that's enough that's a good um reason to have an investigation we know that there's a lot more like when when we were at the archives um they had to edit the the files before they gave them to us and they gave us probably about 10 percent of what was there and they said they destroy 80 percent of the ufo files that they get they just they shred them really yeah, and so, you know, that's a lot of our history being lost there. So we know there's a lot more that they know. And um, so we're just trying to do our little piece for uh, disclosure in Canada anyway, which obviously would tie into disclosure around the world. And, uh, you know, we feel that this case is a, is a good, um, good opportunity to do that. So that's what we're working on, yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. Amazing. So. Um, when so you said there's a first book. What was that called again? The oh, dark object. Yeah, that's that gets still available online. There's a, a used copies are pre, they're pretty expensive, but uh, yeah, that's a great little book uh, intro. And then this one covers all the material from that one as well as well as what's been done the last ten years. So altogether, it's like a good twenty years of research in there. Um, and then, but as I say, just the last year, there's been a lot happening. So we're going to keep updating that. Yeah. Yes. Keep doing nice. it. I'm, I'm excited to hear more about it. I'm, I'm definitely going to check that out. I, but the I, book, I'm, the book I'm working on though, will have some of that, some other UFO cases, but also have some other paranormal stuff in in can from a Canadian perspective. So we'll have some Oak Island type stuff, and um, you know, just other some other good stories that we've been collecting uh, around uh, Canadian UFO scene. Super excited, super excited. And I guess you want to tell, um, you have your own publishing company. Did you start it up, correct? Yeah, it's called Arcadia House Publishing. So that was really just so I could be in control of the book. 
you know, and so, you know, we're also, you know, been talking to uh, larger publishers for, for distribution because we don't really have a, a great distribution network for international, et cetera. So, um, so we've just been doing like small, small print runs and, you know, distribution in Canada, but, um, you know, it's sort of just a platform for uh, controlling our work and then, you know, uh, having it republished by other, uh, other larger uh, distributors. Yeah, that'll be great. Awesome. That'll be great. Get, get, it, get it out there, whatever it takes, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it, it deserves. I mean, we're on Amazon, so you can get it internationally, but we, we, we'd like to have U.S. proper U.S. distribution. Yeah, that. Well, yeah, just, uh, just by doing that, you'll get yourself into just uh, publicity as well. So that's that's a big thing. Um, all right. Well, thanks. Thanks again for coming right. on and doing this. Thanks, you guys. Yeah. Good talk. All right. We'll talk soon. Yeah. Thanks, thanks so much for coming on, man. It's great. All meeting. right, man. Appreciate it. Good night. Yeah. All right. Ciao. Take care, man. Bye. Bye, guys.